and welcome to The Race to the White House, where we cover everything you need to know about the 2016 US election. Join us as we dive deep into the people, policy and political manoeuvres that will decide who becomes the 45th President of the United States of America. I'm Emma Lancaster and I'll be your host for the next 34 days as we count down to November 8. And a fun fact for you, 34 was the number of contests won by Hillary Clinton during the Democratic primary season. So joining me in the studio now to provide us with their analysis uh, that is hot off the presses after just watching the vice presidential debate Brendan O'Connor. Hi, Brendan. Great to be talking with you both again. And Tom Switzer. Welcome, Tom. Hey, Emma. Brendan, great to be here. So in today's episode, we'll be covering the vice presidential debate that just aired on October 4th US time at 9pm and here in Australia today uh, around our lunchtime. It's time for Clinton and Trump's running mates to step into the spotlight, but did they shine? So Democratic vice presidential nominee Tim Kaine has just faced off against Republican VP pick Mike Pence. Uh, This was the first and only 2016 vice presidential debate held at Longwood University in Farmville, Virginia. Pence, a governor and six-term member of Congress, and Kane, a senator and former governor, are both long-term elected public officials with sharply differing worldviews. Twitter has dubbed the debate the thriller in vanilla, uh, but <laughs> we thought it was going to be about policy. That's what we said last week, but yeah. was it? So uh, who wants to jump in first? Let me know. What was your first take on the debate today? I mean, last week we had two of the most uh, unpopular untrustworthy, polarising candidates in living memory debate each other. And perhaps the kindest thing that one could say is that they lived up to those expectations. This week we had uh, two of the dullest uh, vice presidential running mates in living memory face off each other and uh, they did not meet expectations. I mean, far from being dull and boring, this was a lively exchange. Sometimes it got a bit personal, but I think there was a bit of policy in there as well. I think that all things considered, Kane probably won, not so much because of any flaws on Pence's part, but because Kane did a pretty good job of linking Pence to Trump. And this fits the Democrats' campaign of making Donald Trump the issue here. This will be a referendum on Donald Trump. And Pence was put into the situation where he had to try to defend Trump on a few of those controversial issues. I think Tom's right. I mean, Pence tried in some ways to remind uh, Republicans that uh, there's a safe pair of hands in him as the vice presidential running mate, and he largely tried to avoid the more controversial things Trump had said. So there was a lot of dodging going on from Governor Pence as he put out ideas maybe of his own, maybe for his own uh, 2020 run, and where Kane wasn't as polished as Pence. Pence was a former talk show host uh, he came across as pretty smooth but Kane defended Hillary Clinton much more overtly uh, linked himself to his uh, his candidate Hillary Clinton and made the case for uh, a Clinton presidency where Pence I don't think ever really made the case for a Trump presidency and that is uh, that will be picked up on as a major problem. So the vice presidential debate between Tim Kaine and Mike Pence hadn't even started, but the Republican National Committee 
already knew who won. Um, it accidentally put up a pre-written post spinning a Pence victory early on on GOP.com. It read, the consensus was clear after the dust settled. Mike Pence was the, clearly the winner of the debate. Uh, this was hours, obviously, before the debate had even begun. So whoever wrote this anticipated Pence's best moments would include the economy and highlighting <laughs> Hillary uh, Clinton's scandals. Uh, so post-debate, <laughs> which we are now, uh, did Pence achieve this? Uh, I'm curious to know if the Republican Party put out that same press release. <laughs> Look, I think Pence did pretty well. All things considered, he is a polished performer, but he's way down. He's anchored down by one Donald Trump. And it was quite revealing, I thought, that on two key issues, Pence spoke a completely different language. He distanced himself from Donald Trump on two key issues. They were Russia, where Pence sounded more hawkish towards Putin than Trump has been. And secondly, and most importantly, from a domestic policy perspective, the question of deporting the 11 million illegal immigrants. Uh, Pence distanced himself from Trump on that issue. I mean, what's interesting about the spinning the uh, debate before it's already been, uh, you know, run is that part of the Trump-Pence claim to some extent that Pence put out there in a lot of the debate was we're not polished politicians. We're not prof- we're not running, uh, uh, you know, pre-sort of uh, fabricated uh campaign where all of our attack lines have been worked out uh, by focus groups with you know hundreds of people and thousands of consultants we're genuine individuals and uh, and if and a stuff up like this uh, just reminds us again that all politics is to a degree manufactured uh, there's a degree of uh, you know Public relations is a huge element of it. And the notion that you've got two genuine people speaking from the heart against two uh, Washington insiders is nonsense. I mean, uh, and we'll come to the tax issue later in the in the show, but Trump's lack of paying taxes and this uh, tax scandal shows he's, you know, he's an elite in the way that all of these four people running for the presidency are elites. So there appeared to be a regular rhythm to this debate. Tim Kaine cited outrageous things Donald Trump had said or done. Mike Pence declined to respond and instead talked about the problems that had festered on um, during the Obama administration's watch. Uh, Kaine didn't engage with the problems but instead returned to Trump. Um, and I think it was wash, rinse, repeat. Or that was my take just watching. So should we expect more from the VP nominee debate and Could we ever actually expect this debate to include policy? Well, given that Donald Trump is such a target-rich candidate, it's not surprising that a lot of the debate today was focused on Donald Trump. As I said before, I think the Democrats are doing a pretty good job of making this election a referendum on Donald Trump. So it's very difficult for Pence to uh, argue forcefully for Donald Trump. Pence's big challenge today, and I think he met it, was to highlight this insider-outsider dichotomy. I mean, Brendan's right. The four candidates here are all from the political elite, if you like. But nevertheless, one of the reasons why Trump has been resonating with so many people is he's run the argument that he's a genuine outsider. He's had no political experience. He can make things work in business. But moreover, that Hillary Clinton is the status quo candidate in a change election year. And Trump um, and his running mate today, Pence, keep making those themes. The problem, though, throughout this campaign, as we've witnessed in the last week, Emma, is that Trump is incapable of being disciplined. He's erratic and he's exceedingly defensive and he's very ego-driven. And so that's why he hasn't been able to capitalise on any good that he's done in the last two weeks.
I guess we have in Trump and Clinton these kind of two unusual candidates. And uh, with Pence and with Kane, um, we have the vanilla thriller. Uh, so why are presidential running mates so notoriously boring? Is it just about being a safe bet? Well, do you want to be upstaged by your running mate? Uh, do you want to be overshadowed by someone who's far more charismatic, uh, who uh, gets the crowds far more excited, and you have this doubt about their loyalty, that you have the sense that it's all about them rather than about the person at the top of the ticket. So you want someone who is loyal, dependable, maybe brings in a state that's uh, vulnerable like Virginia, uh, maybe brings in a group of voters that are a little bit nervous about your lifestyle like uh, Donald Trump with bringing in Pence, uh, a committed born-again Christian and someone who's close to the evangelical community. So that's you know, what a running mate has to do to, uh, to make you look good. The Race for the White House, a US election podcast for the non-American. So let's talk now about immigration. Immigration was barely spoken about in the presidential debate, but it was a topic that was tackled by the VP nominees. Uh, Pence said that preventing homegrown terrorism begins with reforming the US immigration system. And he pivoted and also discussed Trump's plan to suspend the Syrian refugee program. So is this really the best way to tackle homegrown terrorism in the US, Brendan? Well, Pence has got a record here to defend. He, as governor of Indiana, has put a block, been part of a legislative kind of push to put a block on Syrian refugees coming to the United States because of the view that a few of them have been involved in activities in Europe which have led to terrorist acts or have been uh, you know, put on terrorist watch lists. Now, Kane's response to that, I think, was pretty was pretty good. He made the argument to say, look, you've got to isolate dangerous people, you've got to have background checks, but you can't rule out a whole nation of people, you can't rule out a, a, a group of people because of their religion, or you can't rule out people because they're from a region of the world uh, that has a threat. Now, Pence was making an argument, basically, unless you've got guarantees of security, unless you know these people are going to be good citizens, you can't let that in. The Pence-Trump view is a recipe for zero immigration. I mean, you can't be guaranteed about anything. I think you've got to go to a more sensible view, which says have background checks, but these refugees are uh, largely sympathetic to the views of the United States in Syria. Uh, they're not pro-ISIS. They're often fleeing from ISIS. Yeah, I'd agree with Brendan, although I think it's worth pointing out that public opinion polls, to the extent that they're valid and they've been researched fully, do indicate that uh, Trump and Pence are more on a winner here, I think. And there have even been polls in Australia saying similar things. So bear that in mind before we dismiss their uh, the political appeal of their message. Trump, obviously, he has said many things throughout the debate, but he called Mexicans rapists and criminals. And Kane um, brought out this line so many times, mm. and you could see this was certainly starting to annoy Pence, who near the end of the debate even said to Tim Kane, you whipped out the Mexican thing again. <laughs> you know, he almost sounded like he said, you know, put it away, <laughs> put it back in the box. But why did Kane rely so heavily on this line? And, you know, uh, how is Trump polling now with the 
non-white voters. Well, that's exactly right. He's made this point over and over again to say, look, if you're a Hispanic person and you're thinking of not turning out to vote, remember how uh, threatening this uh, candidate Trump is Mm. to your community, uh, how offensive these words are. And so the Hispanic vote, not just for this election, but some might think for the next few elections, is just going to be more wedded to the Democratic Party because of this what is you know a gross stereotype about Hispanic people? So it was it's a get out to vote strategy that Kane was involved in. It clearly seemed a tactic as much as trying to get under Pence's skin. It was to send this message to any Hispanics or really any person that was uh, born outside of the United States or had uh, you know relatives who were coming from outside of the United States hoping to immigrate to the United States or be students in the United States. It's a, it's a fairly effective voting and, tactic. And I mean, that's precisely one of the main reasons why the Republican establishment is so nervous about this position, because they recognise, and they they uh, spelt this out in detail in the aftermath of the 2012 election loss to Barack Obama, they need to win over more and more Hispanics. And as the Hispanic vote uh, increases, the white share of the national vote will continue to decline. And to the extent that those trends continue, that self-evidently hurts a Republican Party that runs on a nativist, anti-immigrant, anti-Hispanic position. Now I want to turn to what was discussed in one of the later parts of the debate, and it was couched in this term as social, um, but it was actually kind of discussing religion as well. And so Tim Kaine and Mike Pence were born just a year apart and both grew up in traditional Irish Catholic families uh, that went to Mass regularly and revered John F. Kennedy. Um, Both are Midwesterners and both had experiences that challenged their traditional Catholic views, setting each other on, I guess, radically different political courses that would eventually lead them to the VP debate we just witnessed. Um, So although both VP nominees were raised as Catholics, uh, Kane was later influenced by liberation theology and Pence was born again as an evangelical, while most political experts don't believe the candidates' testaments about their faith will necessarily sway large amounts of voters, how could their religious experiences influence their work in a Clinton or Trump administration? Well, one of the things that Kane has uh, really got himself uh, very well recognised for and very well regarded for is a commitment to uh, various justice projects, uh, being someone who's very concerned about the civil rights of African Americans. Uh, so he's used his faith and talked about his faith pointedly in that regard to say, look, I'm someone who's been an advocate uh, for people who have had their civil rights crushed or uh, haven't been regarded. Now, Pence is famous for being associated with uh, businesses in Indiana, uh, being able to not serve uh, gay couples who are uh, maybe getting married and want to buy um, you know, a wedding cake or some other... Uh, um, you know, clothing or anything of the like. And he, uh, he got himself drawn into that debate and argued that, well, if people of religious beliefs who are uh, against gay marriage don't want to uh, provide a cake to a gay couple, that's uh, a choice that they can make. It's not in violation of people's civil rights. Um, they can discriminate against that grouping on the basis of uh, their religious faith. And that was for a while, uh, you know, that issue was heard all around the world and Pence was part of uh, the public face of that debate.
Uh, so also the pro-life, pro-choice debate cropped up in this issue uh, in the VP debate tonight. Um, both Pence and Kane, to my understanding, are pro-lifers. Um, what I don't understand as a person looking on at this debate is how Pence spoke to you know the audience about the sanctity of life. And he is obviously pro-life, but then he also believes in the death sentence. So I'm, I'm just wondering how that is perceived um, amongst US voters as well. Well, Brendan's just pointed out to me that the Pew Research uh, opinion polling, which is arguably the most authoritative polling in the United States, shows that um, the attitudes on abortion are becoming more liberal. Something like 51, 52% take a more liberal position on abortion, whereas 45% are more conservative. But the point about Pence is to reassure the Republican conservative Christian base that Trump is one of them, that Trump as president will govern in a centre-right Christian conservative direction, particularly on the issue of appointing pro-life judges to the Supreme Court. It's a very vexed issue since Roe v. Wade in 1973, when a majority of the Supreme Court has ruled uh, that uh, abortion is legal. And uh, and, uh, so this has been a vexed issue in in, in conservative circles uh, for the last 40 years. And, And Pence here is just reassuring the base, which is so important when it comes to turning out the vote on election day. The Race for the White House, where we put the 2016 US election in perspective. To listen to other episodes in this series, head to theconversation.com or tune in on Wednesday nights at 7.30 on 107.3. Now, let's move also to national security. Listening to Kane and Pence debate national security issues, um, it's important, I guess, to keep in mind that this conversation is taking place not just between uh, two politicians who are vying for vice president, um, but between two fathers of children on active duty. Pence's son is in flight training at the moment and Kane's is an infantry officer. Both are in the United States Marine Corps. So despite their differences, these issues are very real to them in a remarkably uh, real way that I think few nationally prominent politicians share. So do you think this influences their views on national security? Well, Tim Kaine was keen to bring this up to say, look, the temperament of Donald Trump isn't something that would be reassuring to parents like himself who would have children on active military duty. But on the more broader front of foreign affairs, Pence's argument was the world is a lot more dangerous after the seven or so years of the Obama presidency. America's standing in the world has gone down dramatically during the Obama presidency. That's not borne out by the polls. If you look at this world surveys that the Pew organization does on America's standing in the world, America's standing has increased considerably in nearly every country that's surveyed during the Obama presidency, a bit more negatively in Israel, definitely, uh, sometimes up and down in Pakistan, but across America's allies, the attitude towards the United States has been far more positive under Obama than it was under George W. Bush. So that line that the United States has never been more disregarded in the world that you heard a lot in the Republican Party primaries or that Pence trotted out today just really has no factual evidence. It's a kind of based on a sense of when the Democrats are there, we don't the Republicans are saying we're not as strong or tough. Uh, it's rhetorical rather than based on evidence. And yet the same Pew Research polling shows that uh, a majority of Americans think that their country is overextended 
and that the United States should focus or prioritise in favour of domestic affairs rather than focus on nation building and the affairs of other states. Now, this has been a key issue for Donald Trump throughout the last six to 12 months that America has overextended. And then it makes matters worse by intervening abroad. Pence today sounded like a different different candidate. He was supporting a more hawkish candidate, it sounded like to me. So there's a big incoherence there between Trump and Pence. Well, with that in mind, based on Pence and Kane's performance coming out of the VP debate today, um, I want us to zoom out and cast our minds to not the upcoming election, but the 2020 election. Uh, do you think Pence or Kane are automatically major players in the aftermath of a 2016 loss? Uh, could we see Pence or Kane running for president in 2020? I think so. I mean, both, both of them... Uh, have shown themselves to have ambitions to go to higher office. Uh, Tim Kaine, the ultimate uh, um, kind of leapfrog politician, a councillor, a mayor of Virginia, a governor of Virginia, senator from Virginia. Uh, there's only one step further than that. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's the presidency. Pence was a House representative and now... Um, in Washington. Yeah, and now governor of uh, Indiana. So I think they're ambitious men. There would be no surprise prize uh, if we saw them on the uh, campaign huskings in Iowa in a, you know two years time uh, <laughs> perish the thought and uh, so they're you know they're, they're people who I think are in this for uh, you know the long haul I'd agree with Brendan although Kane let's remember instinctively is a centrist or a center-left politician and the center of political gravity in the Democratic Party has shifted left as Bernie Sanders showed um, to great delight for many American leftists uh, during the last 12 months. So I'm not sure that the base of the Democratic Party are naturally going to like someone like Tim Kaine. They might find him too moderate and measured. <laughs> so he could not be extreme enough for them. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> whereas, yeah, I- whereas Pence is a fairly conservative mainstream guy. Yeah, and I, I don't think Kane is probably one of the great campaigners of all time as well. So there'd be, you know, there'd be big questions over, uh, you know, predicting that Kane would be the, you know, the next uh, Democratic nominee. I think you'd, you know, that that would be probably unlikely. So you're listening to The Race to the White House on 2SER 107.3. To download this podcast, head to theconversation.com or your favourite podcast app and look for The Race to the White House. We have reached the second part of our show and today I'm here with Tom Switzer and Brendan O'Connor and we've just been chatting about the latest vice presidential debate but now it's time for a change of topic and we can't ignore this big one, Trump and tax. (laughs) Trump's campaign has been hammered after the publication of documents in New York Times on Sunday suggesting the wealthy Republican nominee may have been able to escape paying income tax for nearly two decades. Uh, So in what could be considered a direct challenge to Trump's claims to be a successful businessman and a champion of America's hard-working middle class, uh, the anonymously leaked tax returns reveal how he used aggressive accounting tactics and the failure of several businesses to claim a loss of nine. $116 million in his 1995 personal filing. And this is about $1.4 billion in today's terms, US of course. So Trump has tweeted in response to the claims, I know our complex tax laws better than anyone who has ever run for president and I'm the only one who can fix them. Uh, So does Trump represent the same rigged system that he claims he's going to change? And is Trump either a tax genius or a tax cheat? Well, he's got a very good accountant. I mean, I think that's the first thing we'd say. I mean, neither Tom or I are going to claim to be uh, uh, American uh, tax law 
experts. So that it's obviously the politics of this that we're going to discuss. And on the politics of it, it doesn't seem that Trump has done anything illegal, uh, but it dents his credibility as uh, a businessman of the first order, as someone who um, is, you know, as wealthy potentially as Trump has often liked to boast about. And there will be arguments made about Trump not contributing uh, to society, not contributing to uh, you know taxation revenues that are used for roads, for the military, for all sorts of for schools, for all sorts of things. So it punches some of the bluster of this notion that Trump is one of the greatest businessmen in modern history, uh, and it forces people to maybe look a little bit deeper where other things might be found. All the New York Times has shown with its front page exclusives a few days ago, which, by the way, was the first October surprise. All they've shown is that uh, Trump uh, has exploited loopholes um, to pay these kind of taxes. Now, the New York Times uh, and the Clinton administration, by the way, none of them uh, are claiming that Trump broke any tax laws 20 years ago. I think that's an important distinction to make because had he done so, the IRS, which is the American version of the ATO, they would have noticed since it does not routinely ignore tax losses so large. Uh, and his point that he knows the system, it's rigged, he can fix it, that didn't hurt him in the Republican primaries. So I'm not so sure this issue itself actually hurts him, although it might reaffirm doubts among independents that he is a, a dodgy player who has a dodgy background. So like you said, um, the New York Times report certainly didn't accuse Trump of any illegal practice, but they decided analysis by tax experts suggesting that by registering a loss, the businessman could have um, cancelled out equivalent taxable income until 2013. This loss was reported by Trump around the time that his Atlantic City casinos were going bust. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's something to keep in mind. It's also interesting that Democrats are now using this to campaign for tax reform to close loopholes, the very thing that Paul Ryan and the Republican Congress has been trying to do for the last few years. (laughs) But it it does point to a rigged system. I mean, so much of the early part of the campaign where Hillary Clinton was fighting against Bernie Sanders was this argument that there's a group of people, the top 1% or the top 10%, who play by totally different rules to the average American, that if they rack up enormous amounts of debt, they don't have to suffer the consequences of that. Of, uh, and in some ways, it's like you or I buying you know, a million-dollar property and being able to write that off against our taxes for the next 10, 15 years. That sounds tremendous to me as a, as a way of uh, you know, being able to minimise uh, your, your, your tax bill. It's not fair. Um, it wouldn't be a reasonable way to run an economy, um, and but it's a way that people in business have been able to operate. So that sense of being rigged, uh, I think if you look into the details of that, it's ha- this. It's hard not to say, well, why does the Congress provide these kind of benefits for a small yeah. group? And, and again, this is just a reminder that Trump should have released his tax returns a lot earlier. I mean, because these kind of leaks were probably inevitable and now he's been forced on the back foot to try to explain all this. Now, he's done nothing wrong illegally, but nevertheless, it's more distraction. It means that he has to defend himself and, as you know, he's exceedingly thin-skinned. The Washington Post reported that Donald Trump took $258,000 from his foundation to settle lawsuits tied to his businesses uh, that include a $100,000 settlement for a fight over the height of a flagpole. And only a few days ago, the 
Office of the New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman issued a notice of violation to Donald Trump's foundation, ordering it to immediately stop soliciting charitable donations in the state. And um, Schneiderman is investigating the Trump Foundation to see whether it broke rules against self-dealing by buying gifts for Trump, um, settling legal cases with the foundation's monies and um, making political donations to Florida Attorney General Pam Bondi, whose office was at the time deciding whether or not to pursue an investigation into Trump University. Uh, So the foundation is just one example of where following the money has hurt Trump. Uh, So are Trump's charity problems starting to tax his campaign? The Florida issue, I think, is just going to be a lingering problem. I mean, if we, uh, you know, it's a horrible thought, but we've got to contemplate there's potentially a Trump presidency, and under a Trump presidency, Trump University will be investigated. Um, there would probably need to be a special prosecutor in the way that there was for the Whitewater scandals that Bill Clinton went through, and that would uh, look into those donations to see if it in some ways was buying off Uh, the Florida Attorney General looking into Trump University in the same way that New York has continued to look into Trump University. And and it would reveal, I think, that the university was in some ways a scam and how you were going to, you know, how you trace that to Trump, uh, his level of responsibility for this uh, would be fascinating to follow. And it is potentially an impeachable impeachable offence. I mean, in this isn't the only issue. There'd be other uh, potential issues to do with Trump's uh, reneging on paying contractors. Uh, so his complex and large business dealings um, will be something that is uh, of a scale that I don't think we can imagine in many regards in comparison to you know, what was maybe a, a, some questionable dealings with the Clintons and their real estate in Whitewater in Arkansas, but it's small time, it's small fry, really compared to the complex uh, business arrangements that Donald Trump's had and the amount of allegations of questionable or unethical business practices that he's been engaged with. Uh, Excuse me for being flippant, but all the more reason for a lot of conservatives and Republicans to hope that Trump wins because he'll be quickly impeached so that Mike Pence is the president. (laughs) (laughs) A more mainstream conservative. Seriously, I wouldn't be surprised if that's on the minds of some conservatives who can't stomach Donald Trump. Yeah, but the level of chaos, um, these kinds of impeachment things occur, uh, cause, um, you know, Trump at the centre of an impeachment scandal Um, would be derailing to sensible business in Washington. Uh, So obviously both Trump and Clinton have had struggles when it comes to charitable foundations. Uh, But is Clinton's charity problem as big as Trump's? Even before Clinton became Secretary of State in 2009, um, it was clear that her family's charitable enterprise, which depended heavily on donations from foreign governments and corporations, was a potential problem. And um, this was something that was raised by Pence in the VP debate. This is really where fact-checking has been fascinating. It's been fascinating throughout the campaign, but fact-checking, I think, is probably as important as ever because Pence today said only 10% of what the Clinton Foundation collects goes to really charitable causes, uh, where people in the Clinton campaign and some reporters came out fairly soon after that saying, no, it's, it's more like 86% or in the 80s of the amount that's going to charities and the rest is spent on administration and flights for the Clintons and uh, and these types of receptions and all of that that we, we've heard a lot about. So it's really, I mean, that's very crucial. I mean, if they're spending most of it on charity work and they're rated as a, as a, as a very good 
charity agency, well, good on them for that work. If they're spending most of the money on sort of really self-aggrandizing activities, well, they should take a lot of criticism for that. And to have the facts and the mythology mixed together, as we've so often had in this debate, uh, and in really in the campaign in general, uh, has been one of the really unfortunate sides of this election cycle that there has been such a kind of set of outrageous claims often put on the table that I think for many people who don't have, you know, all day to follow politics like Tom and I, to make sense of the campaign uh, and what is actually the truth is, is increasingly difficult. So we're in the campaign's final weeks now. Hillary Clinton's position now looks stronger in Florida than it does in Ohio, in Virginia than in Wisconsin and in Colorado and even North Carolina than in Iowa, while Trump has shown the most strength in Ohio, Iowa and Wisconsin. Uh, So we are seeing a reconfiguration of the Electoral College map. And as Ronald Brownstein notes in The Atlantic today, Democrats are increasingly looking towards Sunbelt states rather than Rust Belt states for victory in this 2016 election, whereas not long ago that would have been unthinkable. So with this in mind, it's now time for a gut call. So if the election was held tomorrow and the US went to the polls, who would America choose for the next four years? Tom? Well, believe it or not, Nevada, since 1912, has called every presidential election except for one, and that was 1976 when Gerald Ford lost to Jimmy Carter. Nevada went for Ford. Carter won the election. So Nevada is a pretty important state. And at this stage, it's neck and neck. It's quite intriguing. Uh, I think Hillary's probably got a little bit of a bounce in the course of the last week. So she might be marginally ahead by a few point, I think it's 0.5 if that. Uh, So that's a state to watch out for. But I think that the demography, the electoral arithmetic, the ground game, Plus, Trump's own erratic behaviour still means that Hillary Clinton is the favourite five weeks out from November 8. It's a lot more difficult for Trump if we look at the state-by-state path to the White House. Uh, Hillary Clinton largely seems to have Virginia, what was traditionally a very strong Republican state for quite some time, tied up. Uh, She's doing fairly well, as she said, in polls in North Carolina, doing well in polls in Colorado, largely, occasionally a bit of a swing backwards and forth. But there's a lot of places that can cover for a loss in Ohio, where once upon a time in the early 2000s, Ohio was really the sort of, Mm. you know, the, the centerpiece of a victory, as John Kerry found out in 2004 when he lost Ohio, where Hillary Clinton can lose Ohio, win Florida, win um, Colorado, win Nevada, and, you know, Ohio isn't isn't the game changer it once was. So I think the map's looking pretty good for Hillary Clinton at the moment. Uh, she still looks on the road to the White House. So polls only forecast what the polls are telling us about November 8 today. Uh, There has been a significant swing to Clinton. Mind you, this poll was taken before the VP debate today. So Hillary's chance of winning as of today, 81.4% compared to last week, which was 53.8%. That's a leap of 27.6%. Trump has dropped just to 18.6% compared to last week when he was comfortably sitting at 46.2%. So is this a reflection of how Trump performed in the presidential debate coupled with how Americans are responding to Trump not paying his taxes. I think it's more to do with his uh, erratic behaviour, you know, these three o'clock morning tweets, uh, his defensive conduct about uh, the way he treated um, the Miss Universe candidate. I just think he's just so undisciplined, you know, that's really the fundamental point. And 
the conventional wisdom is right that he didn't have a great debate, but he wasn't that bad either. I think it's just his conduct since the debate that's reaffirmed those widespread doubts about him, particularly among those independents. I think the debate was pretty important. It stemmed the tide for Hillary Clinton. She needed a really steadying kind of influence on in that debate. Uh, she didn't overplay her hand, uh, but she'll get a lot of confidence from that debate, and that will be good for her. Trump, uh, as I think Tom's suggesting, uh, he compounded a sense that maybe he'd lost focus, <laughs> to say the least, in the second half of that debate by this ridiculous uh, inability to see a losing issue and call it a, a losing hand and just fold his hand. Uh, he, he doubles down so often mm -hmm. when uh, everyone is saying, no, 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 um, just you know, apologize or step back from the issue. Yeah. So the ability to bait Trump that we mm. saw in that debate mm. is something that the Hillary Clinton campaign uh, tried a bit in the VP debate today. We'll try again in the second and third debate. And when Trump gets a question that he doesn't like from the audience uh, in next Monday's debate, Australia time, that is going to be really interesting to watch whether he can uh, tone his response down, particularly when he's not responding to a journalist or Hillary Clinton. Well, we'll be talking about that town hall style debate next week. Uh, right now, that brings us to the close of our fourth episode of The Race to the White House. If you'd like to hear more from us, head to the Conversation website, theconversation.com. You can also search for us in your favourite podcast app. This podcast is made by 2SER 107.3 FM with the support of United States Study Centre at the University of Sydney and The Conversation. Thanks to Tom Switzer and Brendan O'Connor for helping us make sense of it all. We'll see you back here next week counting down the race to the White House.